This episode of No Quarter is sponsored by the Underground Retrocade. You love these games, and the way to play them is on the original cabinets. See the side art, feel the controls, and hear the Frankie goes to Hollywood on the stereo. So the next time you're in the Chicago area, relax at the Underground Retrocade, 121 West Main Street, West Dundee, Illinois. I'm Carrington Vanston. And I'm Mike McGinnis. And this is No Quarter, the classic arcade podcast. Woo-hoo! That was me with a little reverb. I'm excited because it's one year. This marks the uh, 52 episodes in a row. Yeah, it's crazy. I can't, I can't believe we've been doing this this long. I can't believe you put up with me for this long. To, to I can't believe you have yet to kick me off this show. <laughs> <laughs> That's just crazy. I've come close many times. Well, but... and, and if, I, if, I, if ever I had a reason, it was this one. <laughs> oh yes we have an interview that the two of us did except i wasn't there <laughs> yeah, so one of us did it and in fact you haven't heard it yet and probably won't until the show gets published <laughs> this is true so we'll talk about that um the exciting interview that i missed <laughs> whoops and there's other news and we've got a game to review as usual and a bunch of feedback and lots lots and lots of fun for this week yeah but first i'd like to take a minute and just acknowledge my co-host and and cohort in crime here carrington thank you very much for doing this for me every single week for a year it's it's been an amazing ride. The fans have been great, and we wouldn't have done this, obviously, if you hadn't decided, hey, I'm going to do this with Mike. Well, the thing is, I'm I'm totally with you on that, and I know that I would not have done it if it wasn't for you, because I have a track record of other podcasts that I do solo, <laughs> that I do 16 episodes in like a four-year period. So the fact that we could do 52 straight in a year, that is, uh, I mean, very rare, I think, that podcasts actually do that. Isn't that right, Flack? Oh, <laughs> right through the heart. <laughs> Actually, yeah. Our um, one of the one of the best things about this has been people like him and the people that have interacted with us, and it's been a heck of a year. We have an amazing listenership that uh, really, you know, is so interactive and so much fun. And oh, I, I love doing this podcast. Me too. Uh, but we did play a game just like we do every week. We did. I played it poorly. <laughs> <laughs> so did I. Uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. I think you have some feedback, don't you, Carrington? We have feedback. We got news. We got tons of stuff. Well, hit me with some of it. Well, the big news, I guess, I guess it's it's news, is something I don't really understand. On Facebook, there's a berserk slash frenzy training camp. Joel West, who is billed as the godfather of competitive Berserk play, has opened a training camp for Berserk Frenzy, and it's on Facebook. It's billed as a uh, a friendly, collaborative, supportive environment where passionate Berserk Frenzy fans can congregate. Uh, You're supposed to go there to share stories and tech tips and high scores and all that sort of thing. There's not a lot of activity at the moment because it just launched, and I don't really understand what's going to happen that it's a training camp like will there be actual gatherings will there be teaching well i don't know but i think it's kind of neat and i like that it's not just there's lots of pages on facebook about a given show whenever you or a given um game so whenever you search for a game one of the results generally will be oh this facebook page where you if you like the the game you can go there and click a like button but this seems to be something different this is trying to make a community of tips and how to's or something about the game. So I, I don't know. Sounds kind of cool. Yeah. We'll uh, keep an eye on that. And we'll let everybody know what that turns out to be. 
yeah, I'll have a link in the show notes and stuff. And so that was the sort of the, the news that, that tickled me this week because I thought it was interesting. And then meanwhile, on Facebook as well, we got lots of feedback to pick out a few. Uh, Vic wrote, bravo, another game that I've not heard about. <laughs> I'm really beginning to think that all of the praises I heaped on the local arcade of my youth were premature. Talking about uh, last week's game, which was Crazy Balloon. Uh, Randall, on the other hand, wrote... Played it once, <laughs> once, trying all the, the Data Legend 2 games. Dumb game then, dumb game now. Carrington's a bit too crazy for this one. You're wrong, Randall. The game's awesome. Wrong, Randall. Wrong. I find myself wondering if our, our love affair with the Atari Age podcast thread is cooling a little bit. He only writes to tell us how much he doesn't like us now. That's okay. We'll take it. Any feedback is better than none. Uh, I loved the game, man. Unabashedly enthusiastic about that game. I was, I immediately fell in love with Crazy Balloon. It was a, a real surprise. I, I adored it. Me so too. Yep. yep. Uh, Nils wrote, Hey guys, congratulations on one year of fine podcasting. You have made many a day at work go by a little faster and a little better for me. And I am looking forward to another one. Please keep up the good work. Well, we intend to Nils. Thank you very much for the feedback. I got a few people sent us email as well, congratulating us on the one year, all of them assuming that we would actually do the show. We had sort of threatened last week that maybe this would be the one week where we don't do it. We oh, almost didn't, we were just fact. yanking everybody's chain. <laughs> actually, Mike is recording from a, um, a hotel this week. So there was a chance we wouldn't have had a, a way to record. Yeah, and I had to sort of do a little sneaky workaround on their wireless to get Skype working. But naughty me, hopefully they won't catch me before we're finished and the Gestapo kicked the door down and dragged me away screaming. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And if if they do, I'm sure that Carrington will record every moment of it and post it as part of the show. I will get up my, my Mike McGinnis sock puppet, and I will do both parts of the show. Is that right, sock puppet? Yes, it is. You're awesome. See, I'm totally ready to go. Well, then there's no reason for me to stick around. Uh, Carrington, <laughs> See you, sock, sock puppet, take it away. Uh, okay, sock puppet. Speaking of you, <laughs> you also wrote on Facebook, Hey all, we're considering moving our little social outlet here over to Google Plus and away from Facebook entirely. Thoughts, suggestions, insults, fire away. That thread became one of our busiest ever over <laughs> on Facebook. It was also news to me. How big are we? <laughs> I was thinking about it just because it's so difficult to get information out of Facebook. So when we're trying to organize the show and find feedback and who wrote what and who replied to what, it's so difficult to find coherent threads. You know, so if I, if I post something and someone replies to that and then a third person replies to that, that reply might be out of order and Personally, I have an easier time tracking the stuff in, in Google+. Plus. Well, it's also easier to track because nobody's on Google+. Yeah, that's Well, I guess everybody's be... on Google+, because I have like 15 Google accounts. I just never really pay attention. We've had, in the hours since I posted this, we've had more than 20 replies. Far and away, the, the, the busiest uh, post I've ever put up there. People are either, either please stay on Facebook, or yeah, you could do Google+, but stay on Facebook. So I guess we're staying on Facebook. Well, I don't think there's any downside to also having a presence on Google Plus and anywhere else that people would like to interact with us. Except that that means that I have to go set up the group there and update. Again, no downside for me. I see no <laughs> oh, downside I, personally. That's, that was the missing key for, for you there. doing more work. Yeah. I don't see the resistance here. I, uh, I think everyone should write in hand type letters that you reply <laughs> with a quill. I, I have no problem with this personally. Uh, I will accept those letters only if the letter has been hand typed on a uh, an Underwood typewriter that drops the S's halfway down like a serial killer typewriter. 
<laughs> is that what they're called? Was that an actual model? The serial killer typewriter? I'm sure it is, yes. <laughs> Excellent. You have to pay extra for that dropping us. But if the letters don't con- <laughs> contain that, I will not read them. Excellent. They okay. Will not, they will cool. not be considered. It's funny because I last what was it, last episode, I, I posted my phone number in there, my, my real phone number. Not a single call. What is up with that? People give him a call late in the <laughs> in the evening. Yes, send me harassing uh, calls. Send me your obscene phone calls. I like it. And, I like and that if, plan. And if, they're, if they're interesting and fun and and somewhat related to the show, I will will play them here and we'll discuss them. And if they're just dirty phone calls, well, then I might call you back. <laughs> nice. Okay. Cool. Let's see what else do we get feedback wise. Oh, it, we got we got one. Just as we started recording, actually, we received email from Suzanne, who wrote, Great podcast, lads. Congratulations, knocking one out every week for a full year. Pretty rare that a cast can do that. You introduced me to a lot of games I never played before and reintroduced me to some old favorites. MAME has never been so fun. I'm hoping you can cover some of the seriously older than old school games from the 70s. I like the before my time stuff the best lately, but it's hard to find information about the really old games. I don't have any criticisms about the show to give because Mike would just ban me anyway. You're darn (laughs) right, I would. This is true. But if you could convince Carrington to also go back to doing his Apple II podcast, then my commutes would be even better. Keep up the great work. Looking forward to all the fun in year two. Well, that was a very nice email. Thank you very much. Well, unfortunately, Carrington doesn't do the one megahertz anymore because I have him so busy doing this. <laughs> Basically, so, this is true. So you have a choice, either one megahertz or this one. And, and I don't want to hear your answer because I know you're going to choose the podcast <laughs> that I'm not on. So, But it's so much easier to do one when you have a co-host. Man. <laughs> this is so much easier. We also got email. Before you move on. Before. No, I'm going to stay right where I am. There's no moving. Well, Actually, have we, have we done news yet? I, I'm not even paying that much attention. We skipped past it. Oh, okay. We did. We did the Berserk Frenzy training. Yeah, going back to going back to news for just one second, you'd mentioned MAME. There's a new podcast out there. There is. I love podcasts. Yes, and this one is called the Retro MAME Arcade Podcast. And of course- That sounds interesting. When I saw the title, I immediately was ready to get my back up. They're stealing our show. I don't think so. I think we stole other people's show. Well, we did. Absolutely. Okay. I'm, I'm not going to own up to that. <laughs> so at, at any rate, I listened to the show. It's like an hour long. It's two guys talking and it is a wonderful show. You really have to listen to it. It's all about not the games, but MAME itself, how to set it up, how to configure it. They're building a MAME cabinet step by step over Sweet. a few weeks of the podcast. Uh, one of the guys, I guess, is a woodworker, which really helps things. Um, and so I'm episode one has been posted and I'm really looking forward to hearing more. You guys should go check it out immediately. Well, finish this one and then go check it out. Sounds amazing. I will make sure we have a link in the show notes. That's awesome. Speaking of building your own main cabinets, Quinn wrote in to tell us, uh, she writes, uh, okay, No Quarter is quickly becoming one of my favorite podcasts. I just couldn't stand to listen to you guys having all the fun anymore. So I built this. And she gives us a link over to her Blondie Hack site, which is a great site anyway, like we've talked about before. Totally awesome. So she has made her own, and I think Quinn is a regular listener, and Quinn should just stop listening now because we're about to gush. She has made (laughs) this arcade control panel that is amazing. It has all the things that most of the control panels would have. Like, it's a great build. Even the wiring is nice. I'm so jealous of her wiring ability. And it's your typical... Two joysticks, six buttons each, and you got your player one and player two start buttons. All that's kind of standard in a nice, shiny, white 
container looks amazing. But then she takes these extra steps that just makes this one of the most interesting control panels I've ever seen. For instance, servo controlled switch to go back and forth between four position and eight position. That's madness. It's complete madness. So instead of having to manually move anything or pick up and twist things, no, no, there's just a little switch. Would you like four? Would you like eight? And then this servo magic happens underneath to switch them. And that would itself be cool enough to make this my favorite build. But then she added this detail that makes my head want to explode. It has quarter buttons. And I don't mean buttons that you press to add a quarter actual quarters it's got slots for a quarter you can set actual quarters there and press them and they act as coin buttons or you can even drop a coin in there and it'll bounce and that will insert a quarter because like she says in fact she wrote on here somewhere that the feel of dropping a coin to start a game is an important visceral moment so i want to capture that somehow so she came up with these coin buttons i'm crazy jealous of this mad genius and her abilities so just such a we'll have a link in the show notes and it's it's a total run, don't walk thing. It's just amazing. Yeah, shut up and take my money indeed. Wow. Oh, yeah, I wish he would sell it. She posted photos of this thing inside and out and kind of outlined the steps of what she took to build it. Mm-hmm. Totally cool. I, I want one of these under my Christmas tree come December. And in a bit of a last minute related news, Carrington has now been replaced as the co-host on the No Quarter podcast by Quinn Dunkey. This is his I'm last okay episode, with everybody. Everybody would be okay with that. <laughs> this build is amazing. And I like that. What I like is... One of my favorite things when you're looking at a build like this, because lots of people post online, like their control panels, what they've done. I love it when it's not just, here's my finished product. Like here, it goes through the stages. Here's what I did. Here's kind of what worked and what didn't work, how it's routed out. Here's the underside, how you're on the wiring, why she tapes up everything first. And those little details are exactly the kind of thing I was reading when I first started building these myself. And just being able to devour those was so handy. And she linked to Slagcoin, which is such a good site. And I don't know if we specifically talked about it before or linked to it. So I'll make sure there's a link to that as well. So slagcoin.com is an amazing site that will walk you through these sorts of details as well. The different sorts of joysticks, how do they go together? Why would you choose one over another? How do the buttons work? And we'll really walk you through the steps of a build in an amazingly detailed way. It's such a great site. And of course, she also links over to the uh, build your own arcade controls forum. Um, So we'll link to all of that in in the show notes as well. So because if you're interested in building something like this yourself and it really makes a massive difference in the enjoyment of playing MAME when you have a a real controller or a full cabinet or something so looking at Quinn's build which just sets the bar so high it's crazy but also looking at Slagcoin amazingly useful site and and hanging out in the build your own arcade controls forum great place to get info great place to ask questions just fantastic resources if you're thinking of doing this yourself you probably won't take quite as much uh, of a beating there as you would at Kalov no, Kalov is just a mean place. <laughs> mean. I love it. It can be. I mean, it's, it's highly Tough informative. Man, those guys can be rough. Any other feedback, Aaron? One other. We got email. Might have only been sent to me because I'm pretty awesome that way. But Ken, you might know him as your co-host. That <laughs> doesn't surprise me at all that he would not include me in the, in the correspondence. <laughs> so he sent us a link over to uh, a Kickstarter called Artcade, which is the book of classic arcade game art. It's a Kickstarter 17 or 18 days still to go. It's already raked in well over 6,000 pounds of its 10,000 pound goal. And it's this big, big coffee table book all about the art, like the amazing art of classic arcade games. So it's it's control panel art and it's, you know, the marquees all, all printed 
lovingly and massively. So it's this big book glorifying the art of, you know, the era that we talk about. And you get both the big coffee table book and also a full digital copy if you if you support the Kickstarter. So well, I have kind of walked away from Kickstarters because I'm too a media gratification kind of guy. This project, uh, I think it's yeah, Tim Nichols in London, England, looks really cool. The art looks fantastic. So at least definitely something worth checking out because he's got lots of images about, you know, how do you get a good scan and how is he doing the color matching and like what he's doing to make these really collectible art, how to, how to make it really vibrant and, and make it really accurate still. And it looks great. Neato. I think that's it, news-wise. We have one last piece of feedback here. What could it be? Hit me. I had posted over on the RetroJunkies.com in the forums about uh, episode 51 being posted, Crazy Balloon, and Mm -hmm. a user named This Guy replied, I've been wondering something. What is your cutoff on arcade games as far as age goes? I know the stuff in the 90s is probably too new, but what about games like Double Dragon, X-Men Arcade, Simpsons Arcade, TMNT Arcade? Are these too new? I think that was about the end of the arcades being truly great. Thanks for a truly entertaining start to my work week. So that's a good question, Carrington. Where do we cut off these games? I'm mostly an 80s and earlier guy. So Double Dragon, which I think is 87, wouldn't mm-hmm. be totally fair game. Uh, what about Simpsons and TMNT, which are a little bit later on? It, the Simpsons arcade game to me, because I think that's 91, 92, something like that. And for me, it feels next era. Okay. Like, so it's not really for me a hard, like, oh, it's January 1st, 1990, that's it. The arcades are dead to me. It's more like, because there's going to be games from the very late 80s, which will be advanced enough that they're not going to feel classic to me. <laughs> like, for <laughs> me, it's all, I'm interested in the, the 1970s and the 1980s era of classic arcade games. Um, so just for me personally, but I don't know. I'm willing to talk about anything Mike throws up. Yeah, my feeling on this is probably similar to yours, maybe a little bit looser, where I never played Simpsons Arcade. I only played TMNT a little bit. Uh, I don't have any nostalgic feelings for them yet, and maybe I never will. But, you know, if there's enough listener interest, I'm not against talking about and trying out one of these games because the best games that I've found so far doing this podcast have been the ones that other people have suggested that I've never played before. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, most of my favorites have been the ones I had never played before because it's super fun to get introduced to a new classic game. As I've said in previous podcasts, Probably not going to do too many fight games just because I don't, I suck at them and I don't like playing them. And we don't talk about pinball. So <laughs> that's, that's a hard and fast rule. No pinball. I'm, just but I'm going to be announcing my new pinball podcast. That's right. I do want to do some pinball. We just haven't had the opportunity yet. It's, it's on the, the ever growing list of topics that we want to talk about. Speaking of topics, before we move on to this week's game, we have one last thing that we needed to, one last piece of business, I guess, to conduct. And that's that because this is our one year anniversary. Woohoo! Yay us! Woohoo! Yay us indeed. We're doing another contest. We are because we have been sponsored. Yes. If you were listening, I was, yes. <laughs> you, you heard Carrington do a, do a read for a commercial for the underground. Uh, Retrocade, the place that he visited in Chicago recently. Scott Lambert owns that and he's going to be, he's going to, he's not a full-time sponsor or anything like that. He's better. Um, he, he's he's going to do a few shows here and there when we do contests. He's going to be the one that donates the stuff. Um, and so we're really grateful for that. And this week he has graciously donated a copy of the Space Invaders, the three disc Blu-ray version. That's that movie that we've been talking about so much. Um, and we're, we want to give it away to one of you. Having Scott and, and the Underground Retrocade sponsor us, 
is particularly thrilling because I would chafe at the idea of being sponsored by a person or a company or a product or something that I didn't support. But I've been there. It's amazing. I drove you know, many, many hours to get there, and it was totally worth the drive. Like, so it's something I feel really, really thrilled that can like have its name associated with our podcast, because I do honestly think it's a fantastic place. And he's a fantastic guy. He's picking up what we're putting down here. And he's honestly just looking to kind of support our, our venture. And it's just, it's such a, it's such a great fit. And I'm just, I'm just so thrilled about it and completely thrilled that we get to give away, unfortunately not to me, but give away <laughs> the Blu-ray of the Space Invaders documentary, which we have talked about a number of times. And, and so this whole thing is really exciting. So Mike, how can one of our lucky, lucky listeners get their ooey gooey hands on this Blu-ray? Well, it's pretty simple. All you have to do is send us your favorite arcade story, your favorite arcade memory. It doesn't have to be long. It can be simple, just some sort of, I guess, maybe a nostalgic memory. Send it to us, post it on Facebook. You've got our email address. There's Twitter. Just get it to us. And next week, we'll read a few of our favorites and we will pick one at random. Yep, and it'll be totally at random, so you don't have to worry that you've got to write something huge or some competition that way. It's more just, you know, reach out. We love hearing that stuff from our listeners, so the idea that maybe you can give us a, a glimpse into, like, what you what you like. First favorite game, first play arcade you went to, an, an arcade memory, last game you ever played, the why you're upset they don't take quarters anymore, like anything, whatever comes to mind. In any way, sort of reach out to us and just in any way contact us well, about that, and you're in the draw. Not quite. Anything. Not quite anything. I, I, if I get an email saying, my favorite game is Pac-Man, and that's all I get, I'm not going to read that one. You're not going to win. But if you tell me why Pac-Man is your favorite game, then you're what in if it's, What if their favorite game isn't Pac-Man? Then they'd be lying, but only they would know that, <laughs> and they would have to you know, justify trying to sleep at night with the knowledge that they lied to us about their favorite game. Oh, listener, why did you lie to us? Oh, my heart is broken. Oh, one other exciting piece of news. We can't possibly have more news. This is almost too much excitement. You will notice that this show is much, much longer than our average show. That is because... It is. What is up with that, Mr. McGinnis? We are going to tack an interview onto the <gasps> end of the podcast. So... I wonder what it sounds like having not actually heard it, <laughs> which is true. Yes, we, we talked about that briefly. In fact, I, I found that insulting game designers is the best way to have them come on your show. <laughs> So I have made a long list of game developers that I'm going to insult in the next few months in the hopes that they will come on the show as well. But this time we have an interview. Well, I have an interview with uh, Brian Cohen, who designed Rampage. It was supposed to be both of us. Yes. But I have this issue with what's Central Time? What's Eastern Time? What's Carrington Time? Maybe Carrington will sit home and twiddle his thumbs and just you'll forget that there's an interview because I don't understand time zones. How embarrassing. Well, so Mike he, picked up the slack. I'm just the comic talking monkey on this show. Mike's the professional one who actually showed up for the interview and got it. And I'm I'm really looking forward to listening to it. I was going to say, I really like the fact that not even you have heard this interview yet. <laughs> uh, so that will be at the end of the show. It's with Brian Cullen, who, uh, as I said, developed Rampage, and he justifies why he did Ralph the way he did Carrington and calls you some dirty names. As he should. What I like is that this whole thing came about by you a few episodes ago in our podcast, um, saying something that was not like he'd be listening anyway. <laughs> right. I called him lazy and a bad programmer. And then I said, <laughs> it doesn't matter. He's not listening. Well, uh, as I, I think I said last time, it took less than five minutes for, for me to get a tweet saying, you'd be surprised who's listening. <laughs> so he did awesome. agree to come on. And like I said, uh, Rampage, my favorite driving game, Spy Hunter, a whole mess of games at Bally Midway. He was there when, when they bought out Williams, we, or when Williams bought out Bally Midway. We talk about that. 
Did you talk about Cosmic Cruiser? Uh, yes, and... Oh, uh, I wanted to be on this podcast so badly. I had questions about that and about Sarge and just... Uh. Well, maybe next time, Gary. Oh, maybe. At any rate, he talks about... We talk about uh, all that and more, so stick around and listen after you hear the final... The final sound effect of, of the character in the character dying in the game that we're talking about this week, which is Mousetrap by Exidy. It is game from 1981. So we are going old school the, the way that I like it. And this game is essentially, it's like Pac-Man with cats, kind of. Except, well, I guess he's got cats instead of ghosts. And you're a mouse instead of a talking pizza. No, I don't think you're actually a mouse in this. You're not a mouse. You're a mouse head. You start out as this blue floating head. Even the blue head looks like a dog's head. It just looks like a different dog's head. It kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, but you're supposed to be a mouse to start with. And uh, there are six cats instead of four ghosts, so that's another difference, I guess. And they don't actually chase you. The cats just kind of wander around, and if they happen to bump into you, they're like, <laughs> yeah, I guess they'll eat you. So, I mean, at first glance, it's like, oh, look, it's... Pac-Man with cats and mice instead, but the gameplay has lots of things to differentiate it. And this comes out essentially the same year as Pac-Man. So what we're competing, it's definitely maze game. It's right in the, in the Pac-Man style in a sense. But I guess the, the biggest difference is you've got these doors, the three different colors of doors scattered throughout the maze that you can open and shut by pressing these color matched buttons. Well, color matched if you're on an actual arcade machine and mash away randomly at your buttons if you're not the way I was. Oh, so frustrating. The first thought that came to my head when I saw this with the, the rotating walls, that they flip 90 degrees vertically and horizontally. I immediately thought, oh, it's like Ladybug. The difference... Oh, good. Yeah, good comparison. The difference here is that with Ladybug, you push up against one section of wall to move through it and it, it sort of flops and you slide mm-hmm. through this. When you press the corresponding button in Mousetrap, all of the sections of walls that match the colors flip at the same time. So the goal is, like, even though these cats aren't chasing you, you can use that to cordon them off and say, okay, now, because you're, you're walking around just like Pac-Man picking up all the little dots. Here, you're picking up all the little cheese. And by by blocking these cats, because there's with six cats in, in a relatively small maze, it's hard to move around safely. So you've got to use these doors to to block off areas. It's, okay, I've got a cat-free area now, and I can walk around and, and pick up a, a bunch of cheese, and I'm totally, totally safe other than the hawk. Uh, the hawk can bite me, and it tries to. So in addition to the six cats, there's this hawk that will fly on screen, and the cats just wander around aimlessly, but the hawk is coming for you. The hawk wants to eat you, wants to pick you up. The hawk is at you. And you can dodge it a few times, and that will seem to confuse it. Or the main thing is, in the very center of the maze, there's an in square and you go in that and it teleports you to one of the four corners and then the hawk is no longer chasing you it's just sort of wandering around aimlessly so it says no more dangerous than the cats but that also differentiates it from the uh from other games i like the fact that exidy qualified the hawk flying around aimlessly as turning stupid <laughs> okay <laughs> so you can turn the you can turn the you can turn the hawk stupid by by getting to the center of the maze and going to the end now the only offense that you have in this game is you can turn from a mouse into a red dog for a few seconds it's, mm-hmm. it's so it's a similar mechanic to pac-man when you eat a power pellet mm-hmm. uh, and the ghosts turn only in this one you turn and it only lasts for a few seconds just like pac-man and i believe 
Well, you get these dog bones, and I guess that's another thing oh, that differentiates from Pac-Man okay. is, yeah, because you've got the dog bones scattered around the maze, just like in Pac-Man has the power pellets. But unlike Pac-Man, where you pick up the pellets in the corner, and the pellet immediately makes you super muscly beach Pac-Man, and you're going to go knock around some ghosts, here instead, you've got, you collect these dog bones, and you've got yet another button, the dog button, that you can press, and then that turns you into a dog. So the nice thing is you're sort of carrying around the ability to dogify yourself, so I liked that. I didn't get how the fact that this confused me and kept killing me. The dog is your superpower form, but the dog is still killed by the hawk. Right. Uh, so you can eat the cats as the dog, but then the cats come back. You don't get rid of cats, just like you can't get rid of the ghosts in Pac-Man. And the cats actually come back a little faster. So there's a downside to killing off the cats. Yeah, the hawk kills pretty much everything in that game. Yep. Well, it's kind of like... Rock, paper, scissors, Spock, hawk. And the hawk just beats everything. So everyone just comes up with hawk. And you do two hands. And you go like, ah, oh, oh. That's exactly how the game's played, Mike. <laughs> do not judge me. So there's also these bonus items in the game. So just, again, we're going to keep using this phrase. Just like in Pac-Man, where fruit and stuff would appear, there are bonus items. There's one bonus item somewhere in the maze at all times. And it starts off being worth a 1,000 points. And when you pick that up, then immediately another bonus item appears, and it's worth 200 points more. So it's worth 1,200, then 1,400 points. And there's no time limit to them, so there's no reason to sort of rush and get them. And the the value counter resets back down to a 1,000 when you die. So it's much more important to try to live longer and pick up more of these bonuses rather than rush and, and gamble because there's not like a time limit on it. So the the feel of the game I found was changed a lot by that mechanic. It's not like, oh my gosh, there's a bouncing strawberry. I better go and get it as fast as possible. Here it's more like, hey, if I can get up to that section, there's some points available for me and I've got my dog bone so I can change later. So it's not that it's lethargic, but it definitely feels like it has a different tempo to the gameplay than something like Pac-Man. Certainly there's no rush to finishing any levels. There's no timer that's counting down. There's no bonus that you lose by taking longer and in fact the only way to move to the next level is to eat all the pieces of cheese in the maze again similar to pac-man mm -hmm. only again the, the because you're not being actively pursued by the cats and the hawk only shows up every now and then if you get oh, good hawk. <laughs> if you get good enough at it you can just hang out in the maze and really rack up the score uh, no by, I by collecting those bonuses I really, really If you're can't. Carrington, you can't. If you're Mike, you no. might have better luck. Maze that. games and me, man, I just, I'm bad at maze games. Like certain types of games I, I can pick up and I can do well, yeah, relatively well right away. Maze games, I just, for some reason, I have a block. I can never, I never memorize patterns in Pac-Man or Miss Pac-Man. I'm just, I'm not great at these games. And my, my scores and the time I play it illustrates that because they are low and they are short. <laughs> I, I like them, but I'm just, I'm bad at them. A lot of what goes on in this game sort of feels forced a little bit. The the prizes don't really have anything to do with. They're all over the place. Well, they're, yeah, they're like paper clips and, and weird and hammers and weird stuff like that. It felt like they, they kind of went, well, Pac-Man is very successful. We should do something like this, but we need to differentiate. Let's throw some random stuff. And we have to get it out it. within six months. No, it never felt like. Any of it didn't work. It all seemed to come together okay. Uh, it was very frustrating playing this on a home machine, my iCade, and then on the X-Arcade because I didn't have those big glowing buttons that, that matched the colors. And so I was constantly looking down, trying to remember which button moved which piece mm -hmm. of the maze. Me and that's, that's what killed me every time. Oh, and that, and forgetting that I could turn into the dog. That got me too. For me, it was the 
on that the actual machine and we'll talk about the cabinet soon it's got these big glowing buttons and not having those since i'm playing just on my for a while i played in keyboard and i also played on my actual not as good as quinn's main controller that i built <laughs> and the buttons like i too would forget well which one does the red doors and which one does the yellow and it, I, I would constantly press the wrong one and then it just you would mess up it would mess up my flow man and i would die <laughs> so yeah that and the and the hawk the stupid stupid hawk I think if I'd had more time to play it more than a week uh, and I had memorized where the buttons were, I, I would have done a lot better and probably enjoyed the game more. I didn't hate it, but overall, this is not a game I had a whole lot of fun playing. It just felt very derivative, and I kind of just wanted to move on to something else. So I actually really liked it. I, I, I was terrible at it, and you I did like find it frustrating. I kind of do. I'm kind of you know, Canadian that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, But I, I dug it. Like I, I actually, there's something about the look of the game I really like, even though, to be honest, like this time I find, I always thought this game had something about its look that I couldn't quite my, put my finger on. This time I finally figured out what it is. Ah. It looks like a ZX Spectrum game. To me, it looks like a game, even though it wasn't on the spectrum, it, it's got these sort of thin lines and vibrant colors and the nature of the colors make it, to me, feel like I'm playing on a ZX Spectrum. But I, I really, I, I like the game. And I, I think the game mechanic is a little confused because it's like you got the dog bone things and you got these switching the maze bit and we're going to have the hawk and you can be a dog but the dog can eat the cats but the dog's still going to get eaten by the hawk and you've got this teleport part in the middle and it seems like it's a little too much it's like a game that needed a bit of editing but even so i dug it i'm terrible at maze games so you know my standards are a little low for them because i'm not going to get good <laughs> anyway but i i kind of like it i still i don't know i had i had a lot of fun playing it this week maybe the reason i didn't like it was just because it was so busy i don't know it felt like i was trying to keep track of too many things at once Maybe not ADD enough to to have enjoyed it that much. Uh, for a game that was released in 1981, Mousetrap is remarkably powerful. It used a, an M6502 CPU, which is always a good thing. Uh, mm -hmm. At six at 705 kilohertz, it used a sound CPU, the same one, the 6502 at 894 kilohertz, plus a Z80 at 1.789 megahertz. Uh, it used several custom sound chips as well. So a one-player game, four-way joystick with four buttons, as we discussed. Uh, Carrington, tell me about the cabinet. The cabinet's actually pretty sweet, to be honest. And and I think we were missing out a lot by not playing this one on an original cabinet. Which I kind of wondered to, about that. Yeah. yeah, it is. And a lot of times I'll think that because of very special controls, you're playing something that needs a wheel or a spinner or, you know, road blasters or something, or you're trying to play Tron or, or Star Wars, where... The cabinet, like just at a glance, you can tell, oh, okay, this needs a special controller. Here we're just dealing with buttons, but we are dealing with kind of special buttons. So the cabinet itself is a fairly typical X City cabinet. It's a black cab, except it has fully white sides. So the sides are all white and it's got pretty decent side art. It's a big stack of cheese and there's a mouse near the top and a cat climbing it and a dog at the bottom. So in a little dog bone. So it gives you that sort of idea and pink and, and yellow kind of coloring to the marquee and, and the bezel art. But what makes it stand out, of course, is that control panel, which itself is just a black control panel, but it has these four big glowing buttons. You got the joystick. And this is a point where if I remember, like a lot of games would have, well, usually you'd have buttons on either side. So if you're going to have buttons, you'd have a joystick near the middle and maybe one or two buttons on the left and on the right. So people can play with either hand. Yep. This is a game that decides, no, joystick is right hand, buttons are left because there's big buttons Ooh. yeah well Ooh. i'm just saying it seems like, yeah so the joystick's off to the right just your standard four-way joystick 
And off to the left, we've got four buttons, but much larger than a standard arcade button, more than twice as big. Three large square buttons that light up and light up as the color of your the doors you can open and close. So we've got a, a yellow, blue, and red buttons. So it's obvious what does what. You can tell at a glance. Nice, big, bright, lit-up buttons. And a big, round, lit-up green button with a dog's head on it. This is okay. I turn into the big green dog. And I think having those actual glowing color buttons would make this game a lot easier than the way we were playing it. Yeah. Yeah, So we were really missing that. Another interesting thing about the cabinet is it's got four doors in the front. So normally if you look at the front of a cabinet, it'll have maybe a coin door and um, and, like the coin box door and the actual coin part might be a separate door here. You've got four different doors. And it was a thing XD was doing at the time to say, we're going to make this more modular. And each one was, I think separately keyed, which sounds inconvenient to me to have four different keys for one cabinet but you've got like the coin door you've got the coin box door you have a whole separate door that has the i guess the board can slide out from it so it's supposed to be a little more modular i guess maybe for upgrades maybe to make repairs easier um so it can be done from the front even though it still has the on off button i think hidden at the back but so the cabinet's kind of cool. It's not a particularly rare game. I found a bunch that have sold, let's see, uh, anywhere from 350 to 500 over the last couple of years. Seems to be fairly typical. Prices for, like, really good condition. Everything's still lit up, working. Not super expensive for a full cabinet with the special buttons and all that kind of stuff. I also found at uh, Arcade Adventures, which is a site that sells parts, you can buy a button set. So if you've got one of these or you're looking to build a game like this, you can buy the four button set with the little the lights built into them and stuff. You can just wire them up and it's 35 bucks. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes in case you want to put together your own. And there was a nice write up with great photos, similar to what Quinn did with her. Hey, I've built this and here are all the pictures of my control panel in stages over at chompingquarters.com. Great domain name, by the way. They have a photo uh, photo set of a mousetrap cabinet being restored and it goes through the entire restoration and so you really get to see the outside the inside and the difference and and how they cleaned it so i like not only that it shows off a lot about the mousetrap cabinet but it shows off a lot of the techniques and and products you can use to clean up any old cabinet and like what he used a magic eraser on and that kind of stuff and then you can see the before and after on how they clean up the bezel how do they clean up the insides how do you clean up the side art yeah it was really so i'll make sure we have a link to that in the show notes as well because i found it really informative so what about, was this ever on anything else? Like, I know this as a ColecoVision port, but did Mousetrap appear in other things too? The only other platforms that it was ported to, apparently, were the Atari 2600 and the Mattel Intellivision. Okay, so it was a home console thing at the time. Right, and it may simply have been that uh, with the, the explosion of the popularity of Pac-Man, uh, there were maze games and clones galore already, and mm. we just didn't need another home version of Pac-Man. It did inspire a catchy hit song on the Buckner and Garcia album. That's right. And the interesting bit of trivia there is that when they went to re-record the the album for CD in the late 90s, they could not find a a cabinet to play this on to record the sounds. And so they ended up recording like real animal sounds instead. Why not use MAME? 
Hmm. I, I don't have the date of the of when they recorded it in front of me, so I don't I don't know if that. Well, was they're going to have to do a third version. Oh, I mean that sucks. Not like they'd be listening and want to get interviewed for next show. <laughs> hey, I can try it too, you know. Well, it would just be <laughs> Buckner. Is he the only surviving member? I think Garcia. I died am recently. going to contact Garcia from Beyond the Grave. Shh. I feel a presence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those are just the ghosts from back then. Didn't yeah, work. <laughs> the Ouija board out. The game was designed and programmed by Larry Hutcherson and Howell Ivy of Exidy. Uh, Exidy, of course, is known for releasing a bunch of ROMs uh, as freeware so that you can legally download and play them with MAME. This is not one of them, unfortunately. <laughs> I was going to say, this one? No, not this not one. Not this one. No. Oh, well. Oh, well. So, Mike, so can I'm you? interested oh, in boy. knowing how well you did. Because I'll tell you up front, <laughs> I did very poorly. Now, I'm blaming my lack of big glowing buttons. But um, regardless of my excuse, I kind of I kind of blow at this game. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna blame the same thing. Although it sounds like I no no have, I took that one already. You have to have uh, a new excuse. It sounds like I maybe did a little bit better than you, although certainly not good at this game at all. I topped out at twenty three thousand two hundred ten points. Well, when you say a little bit better than me, you mean quite a lot better oh. than me. <laughs> so, just, I actually made it out of the first maze. How about you, Karen? <laughs> well, yes, but my high score was an embarrassing seventeen thousand four hundred. That's not so, so bad. Yeah, I don't know. Neither one of us even made it onto the high score list. Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> no. I like the, the way that they organize the high score list. The bottom score is, is rated as like, okay, and the next one up is 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 better and all the way up the, to the top score, which is like I awesome was not okay. Like I was not okay at all. We, we didn't even make that, that, but that doesn't matter because we would not have come anywhere near a uh, world record on this score, at least according to Twin Galaxies, uh, set on... On September 30th, 2009, by Dom Zito, the high score is listed as 622,000 points even. I was so close. We were. So just close. a few more minutes of play. 600,000 off. So overall, this is not a horrible game. It wasn't one I really enjoyed that much. Take you to leave it. If it's in an arcade and I've played everything else and I still have a few quarters left, I might drop one or two in it. I like it better than that. I think it's a good game. I would recommend people checking it out. If you like maze games in particular, it's a refreshing change from Pac-Man. I also think it's an example of a game that's worth playing on a real cabinet because I think it now benefits a lot from those buttons. Absolutely. And, and I would say if, if, you're, if you're that into the game that, you're, that you love it as much as Carrington obviously does, you need to go out and get yourself the cabinet. Um, like you said, it's easy to find and not that expensive. Personally, I think if you want to play a maze game with some variations that – that uh, differentiate it from Pac-Man, I'd say stick to Ladybug. We can't do that because we haven't reviewed Ladybug yet, so I have no opinion about Ladybug. We have so. I have opinions about Ladybug. Did I like it? <laughs> uh, I think you did. Yeah, we've but... done so many episodes now, I can't really remember what we've talked about. This is the problem with doing one of these every single week, is it's easy to forget <laughs> the games that we talked about. I thought you could say this is one of the problems with doing one of these with Carrington. Well, that was also... I don't know what time zones are. I don't know what games we've done. <laughs> well, that's just for interviews. Yeah. I'm just here for comic relief, man. <laughs> you know what else I'm here for, Mike? What's that, Carrington? I'm here for more games, and you better have one for I me. I do indeed. And in fact, we have plenty of games in the list and I will pick one for you right now. Oh, I'm excited. Can I get to listen to it? I guess. Okay, play some. Here you go. I'm still excited. 
you won't be after I kick your butt at this one. <laughs> Actually, more, more than likely, I, I will lose terribly. But Excellent. Then that will be the beginning of the trend of year two, where I win every single week. That's um, the trend I'm predicting. I will end this podcast in a heartbeat <laughs> if it, it even looks like that's a remote possibility of happening. That'd be awesome. Hey, I wonder how we've done... I wonder who won year one, if we added up all our scores oh. for the year. I wonder who won. I'm sure that one of our more um, um, detail-oriented listeners out there could tell us. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I wish I thought of that ahead of time. I already started lying about my score. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing that since the beginning. What are you talking about? If I was lying about my scores, it would certainly be a lot higher. <laughs> I would have much fewer embarrassing scores. Yeah, well, you got to be careful when you lie about the scores, because if it's too high, then the, the listeners start to get suspicious and they question you. So you gotta, As they should be. That's right. Uh, so, again, thank you uh, for podcasting with me, Carrington. Remember- Absolutely. Thanks for a great first year, dude. This was awesome. Oh, sure, love our audience. Sure. Love yep. podcasting. This has been really, really fun. We'll check back in at 104 episodes to see if you still want to do this but uh that's a lot in the meantime keep listening everybody and remember keep listening after after we wrap up here we've got a nice interview for you i'm excited to hear it for the first time <laughs> bye everybody bye you've been listening to no quarter the classic arcade podcast feedback can be sent to no quarter at monsterfeet.com and like all monster feet podcasts the original material in this show has been released to the public domain So welcome to the No Quarter Podcast. Uh, we have a special interview for you all today. And of course, it's only in a, a weird, bizarre world like No Quarter where one of the co-hosts can insult a famous game developer and then have him on as an interview a couple of weeks later. So ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Brian Collin. Insults are part and parcel of what you have to suck up. The best learning experiences come from people unhappy with elements of what is, of course, in my mind, perfect games done perfectly well. But who learns <laughs> anything from that? So I'm glad to be here. Thank you. You make a good point, and but we do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Now, uh, why don't we just go all the way back to the beginning? Game design. What? Why did you want to design games, and, and what sort of motivated you down the track that you took? Uh, I didn't want to design games. I wanted to create entertaining things. I started out as a filmmaker. I made a lot of films in high school. Then in college, when I figured out that actors were harder to control than animated characters, I fell back on my artistic expertise and abilities and started making cartoons. And I won a number of awards for cartoons that I made. And I was thought I was going to be an animator because most of my cartoons were funny and won festivals of comedy and things like that. And uh, I took the first animation test that I was ever offered, a job I was offered, and it was the most boring four hours of my life. <laughs> so I was kind of lamenting that, hey, I didn't know what I was doing. I was out of college. I thought I prepared for a career in make, being an animated filmmaker and uh, or a director of some sort. 
And I was offered a job at the Bally Midway Company. And at the time, this is 1982, I thought Bally Midway makes pinballs. So they must need me to paint pinball back glass. They need my cell painting expertise. So that's what I'm going in there for, and I was wrong. They wanted someone to do animation for video games. And so I got this kind of half-glazed, frozen smile on my face, because as far as I knew, video games were Pac-Man and kind of animation were they looking for. But they were willing to pay me real money, and uh, which was better than like the free beer and popcorn thing I'd been working in previously. And I thought childhood was over. I had a, they wanted to pay me a decent wage, and and I could never I couldn't turn the job down. So I knew childhood was over, and I had a real job, and that was it. You know, all the fun was gone from my life, and I was wrong on all counts. Uh, I'm still a child. I get paid to be a child. Everything about being a designer was wonderful and exciting, and every day was new challenge. And so I totally backed into this. Nobody was doing this yet. I was lucky, lucky enough to be there as it was all getting going, and I was lucky enough to be able that almost everything came out of my mouth sounded brilliant because nobody had done it yet. So uh, I've just been grateful for the last 30 years. Wow, that's, uh, that's an incredible way to find your way into a, a wonderful career. It looks like you got started there and doing animation for, for some of my favorite games. I'm seeing Discs of Tron, Spy Hunter, and, of course, Rampage. Um, can you talk a little bit about, let's start with Discs of Tron. Discs of Tron was the first game I worked on. They made a little office for me in a hallway. Floppy disks at that time were still floppy. They were seven inches square. So I'm going way back now, people, uh, that... <laughs> the tools were all handmade for, we had to literally, we had 16 colors, red, blue, green, RGB values that we had to dial in with a little thumb wheel. By the end of the days, my thumbs were, and then press a second little button to put that pixel one place on the screen. It was hours of work to get even the smallest, tiniest things done, and my fingers were bleeding by the end of it, and I was having a ball. The guy I replaced that started the Dissatron project didn't understand animation. My contribution was just, when I got done, things looked like they moved. Bally Midway was a great, very organic place to work because while everybody didn't work on everything, artists did. So a programmer would be in charge of a particular product project, and he would be like the go-to guy, but artists got to float from project to project to project. So you got to offer your input and, you know, fight with or argue with or laugh with all the different people working on all the different things. And it was a very organic peer-to-peer -peer time to do games. Dissatron was the first thing I ever worked on and one of the hardest games, especially for its time. And for those that don't know what it was, it was an immersive 3D experience with a hardware that couldn't handle 3D, that did not support that kind of thing. The programmer himself mapped out the 3D to 2D, gave me the coordinates. I created this world that was in this silver mirrored, half silver mirrored cabinet, put you in a world that, I mean, well, you saw it, Mike. I mean, did it work? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that, of Dissatron. And I, I, can't tell you how many quarters I lost in, in that game. It was tough. He tuned it well. Bob Dinnerman was the programmer on that. He was a tremendous guy, very 
other people found him difficult to work with. I found him wonderful and challenging. He was he was a, a great programmer. Spy Hunter was the opposite. Spy Hunter was one of these uh, games that was flying under the radar most of the time. It was in a back room. It had been started, and it was on a uh, hardware that wasn't the normal hardware for Bally Midway, so they had a lot of problems with it working the properly. So he kind of was afforded the ability to kind of take his time with the game because management was never asking him for it tomorrow or the next day. And that gave everybody that was working on it, myself and basically all the other artists there, plenty of time to play it, make suggestions, and we just kept adding to it and adding to it and adding to it. And by the time it was ready to go out the door, it was a really well-polished, deep piece. And, you know, there was, it was a wonderful game to work out for a completely different set of reasons, but mainly because we were given the time, the creative freedom to do whatever we wanted to do, to try it out. And that, that's a rare thing. Back then, a lot of these experiences I had in the early days didn't have anybody breathing down our necks, whether it be a client or a publisher or a manufacturer. We were given the opportunity to just try and play and learn and then apply what we learned to the game. They were fun to work on, and I think that shows in what how they turned out. I first discovered Spy Hunter at the Disneyland Starcade, which was which still is an arcade next to Space Mountain and Disneyland in Southern California. And it looked so different than anything that I had played before. It had the had the little grip steering wheel kind of thing. And the more I played it, the more I kept wanting to play it. It just drew me in. And I think I ended up spending most of the day playing that game instead of riding the rides that my family was on. One of the things about those days is I think the Bally Midway management understood the fact that arcades were going to be competing with home games and they asked, they made a point to ask us to do everything we could to make the arcade experience impossible to emulate on the <laughs> home side. So that's why with Spy Hunter, you had the triggers and the buttons and, you know, you had multiple things or Distantron. I mean, if you've ever looked up Distantron in an emulator, it's horrible because how do you do the spinning knob? How do you do that raises and lowers? They went out of their way to say, hey, no, let's make this arcade experience unique. And uh, it, was a, it was a fun time to do it. Well, it's 30 years later, and these games are still almost impossible to emulate. So I'd say you did your job well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we had fun doing it. Uh, so then you moved on. What was, it? was Rampage next? Is that, was that the next big title that you worked on? Rampage was probably the next big one. We'd, we'd gotten a, a, an update in our art controls, and they let us put a whopping four sprites together at once, <laughs> uh, which... To those of you that, you know, like math, that was a grand total of 64 pixels high because a foreground sprite on our hardware in those days was uh, was 32 pixels and background was 8 by 8. I, I liked doing faces. I was, you know, came from a cartoon background, so I wanted to make sure I could get their faces nice and big so you could see their expressions and feel their pain. We had come from a trade show where some of our competitors had background animation. And I was, you know, kind of beating up the tech guys going, hey, why can't we do this? And they're like, no, we don't have background animation capabilities. Forget it. We've only got a screen and a half total of background screen space. So screen and a half is all you've got to work with, broken up into little eight by eight blocks. If you want to do animation, you can't do anything unless it, it moves within a rectangular boundary. And... 
it just clicked with me. It's like like a building collapsing on itself. We can do. I mean, you know, the second I said that, the three of us in the room just you know went off from there, and I created this game and got all excited about it. Tested out the the what we'd be able to do because with very limited resources we wanted to do hundreds of cities and multiple characters and we got it tested and it looked tremendous and we went to our boss the brand new office manager of the department and he said no you know i didn't bat an eyelash he had just been made manager i'd worked with him before i you know it's like thanks tom so i went up to the vp and and pulled in the marketing guy and told him how cool this would be because we're making all these cities and we could write all the cities and do all this marketing and they nodded and smiled and said no then ultimately we had just got a brand new president at that time he'd come over from outside the game industry president of the company and he about three days later, he gave a speech inviting us. He said he had an open door policy, and I think I was up in his office the next morning, and he said yes. Rampage finally got the green light. We went on to break every previous earnings records that an arcade game had made to that point. Everything about it flowed really great. We had a, a ball making it, um, and it was focused on the multiplayer aspect. It was instead of putting all our resources into telling this complex story, we put all our resources in making it go on forever. And at that time, we thought 768 levels was enough to be forever until the first <laughs> time some kid in arcade said, no, no, we're playing this for nine hours. We're going to beat <laughs> this game. So ever since then, I've been getting crap from players who really expected me to do something wonderful at the end of 768 <laughs> levels. And I've always felt terrible, but I just blame the fact that we never knew it was going to be anything more than an arcade game when we created it. We just thought our job was to make it so that it stayed fun so people could keep joining in. It was a rule of thumb in design, as, and it still is, is that we know how to play it. We know the tricks. We know the shortcuts. But we, I guarantee you, the second you put it in the arcade, they're going to figure things out faster, better, quicker. I mean, I mean, we always assume that the player was going to was was going to figure it out, be able to play it better and faster than we ever could. Still, even knowing that, it's always an eye opener when the players just like stand you on your head, bring you down a notch or two. Let's talk about the characters for just a minute, uh, and we'll we'll go ahead and start. We'll focus on Ralph. Uh, Carrington is not here to grill you on this, so I'll, I'll, I'll do what I can to stand in his stead. I don't know if you remember the, the specific question. He actually asked you about it in your Reddit AMA. What was the thinking behind your design decisions when you came up with not only Ralph, but, uh, but the other two monsters as well? All right. Well, George was the first character I came up with. Classic giant monster on a building hanging on the side. It's got to be a King Kong type character. So George, I came up first. Lizzie was obvious, you know, it, I, she had to fit within that same 64 by 64 square. So, you know, her tail had to wrap up and she couldn't have the Godzilla proportions. And I wanted to show her facial expressions. So Lizzie was a natural. And everybody that really wants to overthink this wonders about Ralph. So your pal <laughs> is not alone. But the reality is that we had only so many sprites for a whopping 
four color palettes that we could map these 16 color characters to. So let's see if I isolate his head into one of the four sprites that makes up the entire character and I use George's hairy body but change the color palette to blue, guess what? A hairy animal works. I've got the double mileage out of all of George's body and punch animations, but all of George's body could be reused and all I needed was a different head and color and blue. So I'm sorry for the, the years of anguish I've caused players who wondered why Ralph? Uh, but the fact is, I needed a hairy, I needed a hairy character <laughs> so that he could reuse George's sprites. And a, a cat didn't quite feel right, and a possum, you know, even a rat, you know. I figured the the wolf was about as macho as we could do. So Ralph, it was. Well, I think that that explanation will probably have to have to do for Carrington as well. We we like to rib you, and frankly, I probably wouldn't have put it the way that I did had I known that you would eventually hear the podcast. So. <laughs> no, no, that's perfect. Well, and that's the thing is people don't understand, but game design is good game design. Even here, you know, inside the studio working on new projects, game design is confrontational as at its core. If we all sit down and say, "Hey, we're going to do a uh, you're a, do a game about a radioactive heroic bunny." And everybody goes, yeah, that's a good idea. What did you learn? What did you, how did that grow? How'd that idea go? Peer to peer within a studio, I say this, he says, no, that's stupid. This, you, you got to do this. And somebody else says, no, that's ridiculous. You got to do this. <laughs> game does good game design is confrontational. You want to hear the problems with an idea or a thought because everything sounds brilliant to you. Oh man, I just thought of this radioactive heroic money. Once you bounce it off of three or four people whose opinions you trust, then you know, okay, yeah, no, maybe bunny's not the way to go or radioactivity is going to, you know, not resonate well with the, you know, I was making this for a nursing home app and that's not going to go over well with the, you know, certain patients. Whatever it is, you need that pushback and, and after the fact, it's just as much fun. Because players are the ones that we're making this for, so we want to know what they think. Now, that's not to say that we don't just sit here and chuckle knowingly when somebody brings up something about, why Ralph? That makes <laughs> us feel superior, too, so we like that as well. So let's let's uh, continue down your journey with Bally Midway here. We're, now, were you still with Bally when, when they were bought by Williams? I was. We'd... We'd done quite a few more games. We'd had a good track track record. Um, and I say we because at this point I'm going to introduce my the co-founder of Game Refuge, Jeff Nauman. I say introduce him like he's here, but he's not here tonight. But Jeff and I did Rampage together. We did Arch Rivals together. Um, I did other games like Pigskin and Swackery. And I'd had a good run. And when Williams bought Valley Midway, they only kept Jeff and I. I mean, they took some pinball people and technical people and everything. But in terms of video game designers, Jeff and I were the only ones that survived the move. So, yeah, we moved over and then we were in the middle of the Arch Rivals development. Actually, not in the middle. We were in the last months of Arch Rivals at that time, which was a two-on-two basketball game, forerunner to every basketball game since. But our little wrinkle was that you were controlling the entire squad and you could 
enjoy personal following the other players. So you could punch somebody in the face or pull down their pants and trip them and all that kind of stuff. stuff. So, and we're most of the way through that when the, the buyout took place. We finished that game, and the story I love to tell, although I'll be the first to admit I don't know if it's true or not, but since I heard it, I love to repeat it, is that sure. that game alone, the, the profits from our rivals paid for that buyout. I love that. And then we went on to make other games for Midway Williams uh, for the next few years, games like Pigskin, and before we were asked to come out and form our own company and create Game Refuge. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit. When you left Bally, was that a decision made because you were unhappy at Williams or, or, or because you just wanted to do something else or you guys, you guys kind of got together and said, hey, let's go do that? Bally had done some moving around over the years and thinking of closing Chicago's office and moving to California when they were involved with Sente and they did and they didn't and moving forward and back. And we always kind of just stayed where we were and kept doing what we were doing. I, I pretty much keep my head down because I enjoy what my work and I don't really know what's going on in the industry. And I was very surprised. I'd been at the new Midway for a couple of years and I started getting calls from a producer from EA who wanted me to come out and work for him. And I said, no, I, you know, starting a family here. I like Chicago, love to visit California, but I don't want to work there. And we'd had talks several times. And eventually he threw me a curve. He said, look, what if you formed your own company, we paid for it, and we agreed to do any game you wanted to do sight unseen? Wow. That kind of makes you think. That's that uh, proverbial offer you can't refuse. So I talked it over with Jeff. We literally said our goodbyes to Midway and very friendly parting of the ways, quit our jobs, and with no contract, nothing other than that verbal phone promise, we head out to California, pitched a game for a paramilitary squad-based Sega Genesis game to them, to a room full of strangers, basically. And they loved it. There was a brief moment of worry when somebody said, hey, we'd like this better if you made it, would make it street gangs. And we said, no, we've got kids. You know, this comic war thing is something we don't mind showing our kids, but we don't want street gangs. And they said, okay. And then the rest, as they say, is history. We left that meeting, formed Game Refuge, and uh, been doing that for 20 plus years. And so, so what, what were the early days at Game Refuge like then? It was initially just Jeff and myself. That first game we pitched, obviously, maybe not obviously, maybe I should spell out, was General Chaos, which would go on and be okay. like their number two game uh, the next year. And we worked on General Chaos. It was a you know labor of love. This was our first chance to do whatever we wanted to do, and we had a ball doing it. I did the art. He did the programming. The early days of Game Refuge were very much like our early days at the original Midway, except we didn't have all our fellow designers knocking around. By that time, we'd been working together for 10 years. We had a good rapport, good shorthand, if you will. We both worked out of our respective homes. I actually built an office in like the backwoods of my property. And so it was, it was just a real nice, idyllic way to work. And we did that for the first several years, did games for EA. And then eventually other people started tapping us on the shoulder, asking us, come do games for them. And that's kind of still the way it goes today. 
as a businessman, I'm a really good game designer. <laughs> I, keep <my laughs> no, I keep my nose worried about the games. And so far, we've been really lucky in that people keep tapping us on the shoulder, asking us to do new stuff. So That's always a good thing. And it sounds like a very conducive and creative environment that you've set up there. Yeah, now it's very different. I mean, now, after the first couple of years, we had to start pulling in people to help us. And we sure. tried to bring in people who want to be designers because the way I look at it, it's much easier to design a game when everybody in the process understands the big picture. When I hire people, I tell them, it's like, you may just want to be an artist, but if you want to come work for us, I'm going to need you to learn to become a, to think like a designer because you're working on this art element. But if you understand what the programmers have to do to make it work, or you understand, programmers understand what the artists do, and all of you are understanding why we're doing it for the player, that's when the great ideas are going to come out from every direction. And that's when things become much more fun. I tried to model everything after the early days at, at Bally. It sounds like you've been very successful with that. Well, it's we're we're still here. We're still kicking. There's uh, there's 25 of us, I think, right now. Still a relatively small developer in in the the big pool of oh yes. of game developers. Yeah, we we like it that way. It it's a lot more fun for everybody when they can work on something today and see it in the game tonight or tomorrow. It's not the norm. People will ask me about you know what should I do about game design or what should you know how should I do this. I have to tell everybody, we don't do it the normal way. We just do it the way we found it works best for us. Now, at what point did, did one of you sit down and say, hey, you know, we should make a, a sequel to Rampage? Everything we've done since we've become, you know, our own independent developer is pretty much client motivated. Clients come to us, ask us if it looks like a good fit or it inspires us. We sign on and we do games for whoever wants them. We got sucked right back into Midway. Uh, the people at, at uh, Midway came to us for a couple of different projects. And we were in there talking about a uh, one project we were working on when the head of marketing said, you know, we really need something that appeals to women. We've got our fighting games now that are doing incredibly well. And we've got all the teenage boys locked in love everything we do we need something that appeals to a broader audience you know just talking about what they needed as a company and jeff and i looked at each other and said let's redo rampage and then of course they jumped right on it because the original rampage one of the reasons for the great earnings was even though it was you're eating people and you're tearing down cities and everything about it could be presented as a horrible, violent, anti-social experience, we <laughs> did it with through our sense of humor and our tongue-in-cheek, and we appealed to women. We appealed to older people and younger kids. Rampage had a huge, broad appeal that, as soon as we said it, the Midway guys said, yeah, let's redo Rampage. The nice thing about redoing something where the basic mechanic is already given was we didn't want to do a sequel. We did a reinvention okay, now that we it's 10 years later, we've got all this available art space, technology's faster. What else couldn't we do the first time around that we can do now? And that's what led us, I mean, Rampage World Tour, we had a ball with because we could, and we could put tons and tons and tons of hidden stuff in there. Now we didn't do 768 racks this time around. By then <laughs> we had, it had dawned on us that people wanted to see 
the game end eventually, and we knew it was going to home. So the only trouble with the the ending we did on Rampage World Tour is for those of the few of you out there that have made it to the end in the arcade that are still alive, you'll remember that the three monsters got shrunk down to six inches tall, and then they bounced around on the ample bosom of the Dr. Betty Veronica inside the spaceship. And unfortunately, <laughs> that got cut out of several of the home game versions. <laughs> so, I mean, it was very clean, and by today's standards, it was nothing. But the very fact that they were bouncing around on her had some, uh, I guess we crossed the line for 1992. <laughs> what are you guys doing now? I know that you have a, a um, you're in the middle of a Kickstarter. We've been doing everything over the last 20 years. We've done casino games and home games and touchscreen countertop for the, those things you play on the top of bars and suites of games for adver games where we go to trade shows and people play our games for a week. Lots of fun stuff over the last 20 years. We've been doing a couple of Facebook games. We've got some mobile th- mobile games we're finishing up right now. What we just started this summer is we, we've talked about it more than once over the last 20 years, is returning to the chaos world and saying, you know, is the time right now to try this again? And in our spare time, of which we have precious little over the last summer, over this summer, we have put together models bringing the cartoony General Chaos squad or the general himself, General Chaos and General Havoc, into the 3D characters. And so we want to put them in a 3D world, and we are working on General Chaos to Sons of Chaos. The point of the Kickstarter was and is that if we can treat this like a real client, i.e. the players of the world, saying, hey, we want to play this game and we want you to include this, we created a Kickstarter that maps out for the player everything we want to do, and we just say, okay, we threw it out there to the world to say, whoever wants this, please support this Kickstarter, here's what we want to do how much we do and how soon we get it done is really going to depend on the feedback we get. Like we did with Rampage World Tour, we're completely reinventing the world. This isn't a sequel. This is the game from the ground up. I mean, one of the things that made this so, the timing so perfect for me to finally say, yes, let's try and redo this, is the fact that PCs are now touchscreens. Pads are everywhere. Mobile apps are everywhere. And as everybody who remembers General Chaos knows, There was a multiplayer local on the same screen, and while that was fun and that made a lot of the gameplay manic and insane, the ability to have your own screen, whether it's on two phones or two pads or across the internet or across a LAN, is only going to add to the experience, the fact that I can pull these guys out and ambush you because I set them up before. And the fact that it's touchscreen means that Unlike the D-pad, which personally I felt was the biggest of the original, is I can now just say, touch the screen and go, you, go here, you, go here. And I don't know if that came across, but I'm touching my screen while I'm doing that. The fact that I can circle a squad and pull these guys, grab these two guys, send them down here, and then because we've got the capability now, I mean, we still see the battles being the core feature that take place in three to five minutes, and you are fighting it out head-to-head with one, two, three, up to six other 
people fighting with your squads here. That's going to stay the same. We don't want to get to this big resource building. You play for two hours and you have fun in the last 15 minutes. So we want the core game to very much be the same. But the fact that technology lets us do all these other things that in the time between battles, I can fine-tune the AI of this particular gunner or my the way my blasters work or I can upgrade them from just throwing dynamite to running up and sticking plastique on the back of a tank. Oh, and vehicles. And we're we're adding <laughs> really crazy cool vehicles all of which are built for our particular universe. The general chaos world and the general chaos gameplay is all about in moving individuals. So an armored infantry vehicle is a tank that fits around a guy, all right? I mean, wow. it's it, it dreadnoughts. For me, it's all about the strategy and real-time strategy. Real-time strategy is one of those words that, you know, hey, when you're playing a game that takes four hours, real-time strategy means something. But when you're playing a game that takes four minutes, real-time strategy and tactics... I mean, the level of adrenaline is just insane. So I want to be saying, okay, move this tank to here. But by the time that tank is halfway there, the battle may have shifted because the other players got his guys sweeping down from the top. Everything about what we've always wanted this game to be is now possible. And the Kickstarter gives us the opportunity to say, people, if you want this nine months from now, support this Kickstarter. For the fans, Chaos fans out there have been wonderful. They've been just overpowering us with their memories and everything about what they loved about it and their support. Whether or not we actually resonate with the rest of the world (laughs) has no idea what kind of a crackpot (laughs) game this was or is still remains to be seen. But one way or the other, we're going to get this game done because I'm... I've let the genie out of the bottle now here at the offices, and there is no way I'm going to be able to hold my guys to other projects. We're going to get this game done. So it's it's exciting. I'm nervous about what I've done here by by launching <laughs> this thing now. Yeah, everybody here is really pumped. I'm sorry, was that too much detail? Not at all. No. In fact, you, you've just earned another fan. I can, now I can't wait to see it. This this sounds really incredible. No, we're 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 having a ball. Definitely good luck with the Kickstarter. Um, I can't wait to see how it turns out. Uh, I do have one or two one or two more questions for you before I wrap up here. First of all, is what is BFC Dinnerman? Bob Dinnerman was the programmer on Discs of Tron. BFC is probably me. Is there what? There's some new strange dance that's sweeping the nation, or perhaps a. <laughs> a a rock band with that name. I don't know what BFC Dinnerman might be. Well, not nothing that exotic. There's there is an, an Easter egg in the Discs of Tron game that I, oh, that I thought maybe oh, you would know about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's we weren't allowed to put our names in the credits back then. Bally would shift the original Bally Midway. They'd shift back and forth on a weekly basis between we're all game designers here, <laughs> and then when it came time to talk money. You know, none of us are game designers here. So right. We were not allowed to put credits in video games. So, yeah, that BFC Dinnerman is... <laughs> okay, yeah, that makes sense. That's exactly what it is. That's me, BFC, and Dinnerman was Bob Dinnerman. Of all the games that you've designed, like 45 or 50, something like that? Over 90. Wow, okay. I was way off on that. So, 
Over the 90 games or so that you've developed, are there any Easter eggs out there that have not been discovered yet? It's your show, and I don't want to correct you, but I didn't put Easter eggs in most of my games until I moved. I established a relationship with some of the guys in in the trade magazines, like Chris Bieniek, uh, editor-in-chief at uh, Tips and Tricks. He was a fan of our games, a lot of the early games, and he used to, when he finally got to know me well enough to feel he could chide me, he gave me grief about the fact that I didn't put (laughs) Easter eggs in games. About the only two that I can recall from the early Bally days, and I don't even remember the Dinnerman one. I mean, I remember it, but you had to remind me. The only one I really remember is that in Sarge, if you have the dip switch settings correct, in certain cabinets, if you get high enough in the game Sarge, the girl in between racks would be topless. That's one of the few things we put in there. We didn't do that much. And then later, I was told that, hey, if we want press in some of these magazines, we better start throwing stuff in. So I put hundreds of hidden things in Rampage World Tour. I mean, literally hundreds. Most of the things that I put in games, I put in for people that want to look, so they're not really hidden. You don't need to know them to play the game. But if you understand that the name of this building you're passing as you're driving by happens to be a play on a Stephen King character's mother's sister-in-law's beauty salon, then, you know, you'll enjoy the game that much more. I don't know. The Easter egg thing was something that we did purposely to get, because it, it helped make guys who were writing about our games give get us more coverage, I guess, during those days. Okay, so is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't? There are thousands of things that you should have asked me, but because (laughs) in deference to your listeners who have got lives, (laughs) it's probably best that you didn't. This was fun, and please come back another time when you think of what those things might have been. Oh, and one other question. So how did you find the No Quarter podcast to, to hear me insult you like that? We're a small group, as I mentioned earlier, and we recently hired a full time social media guy. Uh, one of the oh, Facebook yes. games we're we're working on now. We've we've been trying to wing it ourselves and just kind of do what comes naturally. But as a social media guy, I'm a good game designer as well. So we finally realized we needed some help, and I pulled in a guy who's who's been fantastic. And he, so Joe Stegerwald is the guy who turned us on to you. Ever since he's come on board, my awareness of the the world outside my office has expanded greatly. Okay. Well, I I think that'll uh, about wrap it up. Um, I I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. It's been so great. One of the best things about kind of pulling my head out of the sand here and being aware of the rest of the world is I've been finding, it's been wonderful talking to people whose lives I touched accidentally or whatever 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And it's, it, it really means a lot. It sounds so ridiculous and corny to say that, but it really means a lot to know that this giggle that I had at work 30 years ago or 28 years ago or 18 years ago resonated with people out there enough that to this day they're willing to say, hey, thanks for that. And this has been a totally enjoyable conversation for me. So I hope (laughs) hope you find it useful. Oh, absolutely. And uh, thank you very much, Brian. All right. Thank you.